1: Today, we're heading along the banks, what is it, the south bank of the River Tay. Um, We can see Dundee on the other side in the distance, and we're heading to meet a man called James Oswald. And James is a farmer, and we're going to find out about that. He's also someone who has majorly diversified into something very different. You might recognise the name, James Oswald certainly you should do if you're into your crime fiction. Um, I'm not going to say too much more because let's have a chat with him and let him tell us more about what he does. Now we just need to find the farm, which is just along here, I believe. It's actually quite a stunning bit of countryside now. We're on a side of a steep hill. It uh, almost looks like sand dunes. The road's got blowing sand on it. Looking right down onto sort of reed beds and, and the silverite. so yeah so this is going to be quite interesting because I'm a bit of a fan of this guy's work and it's quite nice to be able to go and see someone like that for the pot but I think there's an interesting story too because well yeah he's a farmer and he's, he's writing books and he's got a very different story to tell for us all Right. Let's see. <clears throat> James. Hello.
0: I'm James Oswald, livestock farmer and and author, best-selling Sunday Times best-selling author of um, twenty novels now. I've got two crime series: the Inspector McLean series, which is set in Edinburgh, and the Con Fairchild series, which is set all over the country. And I've also written five book epic fantasy series based on, when I, I lived in Wales for 10 years, based on the Welsh language and mythology. James, so
1: delighted to be here. Um, we are the On Farm podcast, On Farm being food, agriculture and rural matters. And I, I think I can admit to this on the podcast as well, I'm delighted to be here because I'm a fan. So <laughs> <laughs> I might have to just get that out of the way quite quickly. But yeah, we're 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 here because you have a. I think it's a very interesting story to tell from a, from a farming perspective. What led you from farming to, to best-selling author?
0: Well, I mean, I don't know about best-selling author, but I've I've always been, I've always loved writing. It's something I've done as a hobby for years and years. I actually had a, a comic script published by Two Thousand AD Comic in nineteen ninety three, which gives you some idea of how long I've been doing it for. And I I wasn't, I didn't grow up on a farm either. Um, my father did grow up on a farm. That farm was up in Easter Ross, up, up, up north okay. of Invergordon. And, and he was going to run the farm. He was all set up to take on the farm, and then for various complicated reasons, it had to be sold. So he lost the farm, as it were, and ended up working as a stockbroker, so a different kind of stock, uh, in London for 20 years, which is why I don't sound particularly Scottish, because I grew up in the south of England. But he always wanted to farm. I always remember when we were very small, my, my brothers and sister and I, uh, every Christmas we'd have our Christmas list of what we wanted to get for Christmas and we'd have a little book. And there was a page for each of us and there was a page for my mum and a page for my dad. And dad always just wrote farm. That was all he ever wrote. Okay. He, he commuted into London. We, we we lived in the countryside. Most of his friends around where we lived were farmers and farm farm workers and stuff. Those were the people that he mixed with. And then when they had the big bang and the deregulation of the city in the in in the, in the mid 80s he got a big chunk of money from that and bought this place
1: and then here you are you yeah. did you come
0: up here yeah, well, at that I, we, I, I moved moved up with here, yeah. with, with the family yeah. um i i was actually i i went to aberdeen university at much the same time so i moved as far away from where we lived down in near london to go to university and the parents followed me up <laughs> <laughs> But it was quite quite handy because Aberdeen's only an hour and a half yeah, yeah. up the road. Yeah. So I, I did a degree in Aberdeen and then I stayed there for five years afterwards and basically just used to help out. on I'd come down and help with lambing and carving and anything to do with harvest and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, so just helping out on the farm. And
1: did your dad very much become a farmer as oh, yes, well at that absolutely. stage yeah he
0: was he, he he was he was full on we had well it was it was about 500 acres about 100 150 acres of, of arable good arable land and we mostly grew molting barley here and then he had i think it was about 50 head of of, of suckler cows and other followers and stuff and, and then and they ran on all the rougher land mm. And about four hundred ewes. so we it was a good commercial farm and he had a, one one man working with him, but he did most of the work himself
1: because just just for our listeners just to give an idea of where we are geographically we're on the south bank of the Tay estuary and it just the ground rises really steeply up from the water right up and we're James's steading and house is on a sort of shelf halfway up a hillside oh, halfway up, yeah. yeah with with the hill rising behind and and some really, well, steepish but good-looking arable ground down to the tay below. So
0: a, a real, a really good mixed farm back in the it, day. It was it was yeah. a very very good productive mixed farm. Yeah. Sadly, when when my mum my and dad very sadly died in a car accident in two thousand and eight, um, which is when I I took over the farm. But I've got two brothers and a sister, and everything was split four ways. So in order to keep as much of the farm as possible, we had to sell most of the arable land. Mm-hmm. There's a lovely, lovely arable field just outside the kitchen window here, but that belongs to my neighbor now. Uh, <laughs> when we first came here, we we owned, the farm included the land all the way down to the Tay, but not as far up the hill as it does go now. But over the years, my father sold some of the land to the north, uh, with, with, uh, on the banks of the Tay, and bought the hill, basically okay. Norman's Law, so the the farm geographically has moved south. But obviously, the farmyard has stayed where it is because you can't pick up the buildings and move them. So now, but it's climbed in yeah, altitude as it's, well. It's, it's climbed out yeah. Well, we go over the the hill and come okay. back down the other side. But, right. but 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 all the buildings and 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 everything are right in the, the northwest corner of the farm, and you can go two miles to get to the other side okay. of it. So we're we're quite spread out. So. Staying on farming and things. I, I mean, I'm really
1: keen that we go in to talk about Tony McLean and and, and some of the books and what have you. But st- staying on farming for a minute, you came back in 2008, as it were. Um, Sounds like tragic circumstances. Sorry to hear that. But you came back here and 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 you took you took on what you could. Your your brother, your your family, you split it up. But you took on
0: a part of the farm. Yeah, I I, I took on as much as I could. So yeah. basically, we we sold. Up, I think it was about 100. 150 acres of, of arable land and i kept everything else i've mm-hmm. uh, got the the, the steading buildings mm-hmm. and my brother lives my younger brother lives in the the old farmhouse so he got that as his chunk mm-hmm. it took a little while to sort everything out as, as, as the way yeah, with yeah. estates and things so when when dad died also he'd he was 72 so he'd, he'd he eased back from the from, from the the full-on farming and he'd, he'd he'd rented out well he was in a partnership agreement with the arable land and he'd rented out some of the grazing and he had some some a, a weather a weather flock and that was about all all livestock he was doing so when i took over there was nothing uh, no livestock and i had to start again from scratch and obviously wanted to start again you wanted oh, yeah. to farm. I want to, well yeah. i want i'd always wanted to do it yeah. slightly differently to the way he was doing yeah. it i mean what son doesn't want to farm yeah. differently to yeah. their yeah. farmer yeah. Uh, to their father and um, and I I wanted highland cattle Because a lot of the land is very rough mm. grazing and they they do work very well There and also they're just magnificent beasts. So we we established a nucleus fold of, of pedigree highland cattle And I've been slowly building that up over the years. I also we we, we had a, a flock of Romney sheep partly because my, my partner Barbara is um Although she's a highly qualified, got a doctorate in, in animal nutrition and, and, and worked for ADAS for a long time, um, she's also a very keen knitter. So she wanted a wool sheep, and a, a mixed sheep, and the Romneys are very good for that. So we, we built up a, a flock of, of purebred Romneys. But about four, four five years ago, uh, when the books took off um, and I, it was just too much work, it so happened at the same time our neighboring farm was sold and the new family who moved in there were looking to rent some extra grazing came up here and said asked me if I'd, I'd got any grazing they could rent and I said yes and would you like to buy some sheep too <laughs> so they bought bought all my sheep and they now rent about a hundred acres of the total land is that, and is that difficult for you no it's 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 actually it, it, it's great because I, I, there's not many of the Romneys left now but um, but yeah you know, I, I get to see my my old sheep and I don't have to do lambing yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it, it works out really well it means and we get on with them really well they're, they're in a really nice um, family and if if I have to go away to do a a book event somewhere whereas before it which is Barbara was just here and if something went wrong she'd have to mm. phone around mm, for mm. for help now it's just pick up the phone exactly. and and Andrew will come and he he, he and 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 it's it And Andrew is the main farmer. His father's there as well. They came down from Caithness, and and his his father's quite old, but he's very, very knowledgeable. He's always going around keeping an eye on things, which just is a a weight off my mind whilst I'm chasing deadlines.
1: But you've obviously kept the the, the cattle and and built the numbers up a bit of the cattle as well.
0: Yeah, I started off with... I, I bought 12 pedigree highlands from... Willie Thompson over at uh, at bar head okay. he's dead now very sadly, but he was a, a very big in the highland cattle okay. society and and a bull and um yeah we we've we've now got i think we're up to about eighteen breeding sucklers and so we we keep our replacements and mm-hmm. just get a new bull in every four or mm-hmm. four or five years. It's getting more and more difficult to i mean they they don't really make any money the highlands i have to admit. We had a box scheme. Uh, our neighbors, again, they, they were running a box scheme, so we were selling steers to them, and, and, yeah. and, and that was working quite well. But the, the abattoir that did all the well the, the, the meat plant, because they, they didn't do the killing, uh, but they did all the, the, all the cutting and, and, and sorting out the box scheme, was downfield just outside Cooper. And that closed down about uh, a year ago now. They've been trying to sell it for a long it's, time. It's
1: so, um, so annoying. The, the number of people that we speak to that are in a similar situation, I tried to do it. I was selling boxed lamb. Mm. And it was fine because we had the abattoir at Gala Shields and I took the lambs over there, dropped them off, and the next time I saw them was in a nice cardboard box in the butchers in Lauder. Mm. Because they, they did all the transport, it was all fine. The Gala Shields abattoir closed... And the nearest one after that was Wishaw or Paisley or something, and you had to put them on a lorry, and
0: it just doesn't well, work. Same with the, I mean, the, with the steers, we used not to, to 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 dock their horns, and we used to take them to to, to um, Dunblane, mm-hmm. and the because the abattoir there would take horned beasts nowhere else will. So now we have to uh, we have to um, do them at um, well they'll, they'll get done. Um, the last year's calves will come down for weaning, and we'll do their horns. Um, then, and I've tried doing various other other, you know, doing them when they're only a week old or whatever, and it never really works properly. Yeah. But, uh, and I hate doing it. But, I mean, it doesn't hurt them. It's all done under with the vet and under anaesthetic and everything. And they're fine once they're done, but they don't look the same. <laughs> <They're> no, <laughs> islanders. No, islands. Yeah.
1: Yes. <coughs> Pause for a cup, cup of, of tea. tea. Yeah. Right. Um,
0: thank you it's kind of like some milk there and some sugar perfect thank you what?
1: thank you so that's the problem though because you know we're, we're, we're kind of going tangential here but there are so many people who have had probably what you would call false starts in trying to do like farmers markets mm-hmm. or sell direct box scheme as you talked about it but the facilities and the the infrastructure is just not there to support it.
0: Well, I mean, the other thing that we tried to do with the Romneys um, was to get the... Because Barbara is very much into her knitting and her yarn and stuff, and we we, we got a, um, a whole load of the lambs lambswool uh, processed one year uh, to, with the, mm. the idea of selling that on. Um, that was about eight, nine years ago. I think we still got some of it upstairs. And it cost a lot of money to get it processed. Mm. It had to be sent down to, I think it's... Dorset or Cornwall or somewhere is the nearest place you can get it done, because um, there's nowhere that will process it on small scales, and it's it's possible to do it, but it requires an awful lot of um, upfront capital basically, uh, and uh, and then it's a long long time to pay off. So um, that that was you know a, a, another potential farm diversification which is stymied by the lack of. Um, you know, facilities but then on the other hand it's there's a reason why it's expensive yeah. it's because it's a it's a, a long and complicated process
1: but then the diversification came along that what i'm going to say in terms of diversifications it must have been quite an easy one to to finance as it were you didn't need to build a shop you didn't need to whatever you i guess you bought a laptop or, or, a, or a sharp pencil or what you know how did it work
0: well as i say i mean I, i'd always actually always been writing and even before before i I um, took on the farm. Um, we'd been down in Wales. Barbara went, actually, uh, got a PhD in, uh, in animal nutrition at the Dick Vet in Edinburgh, and then got a job working for ADAS on one of their research farms down in, in Wales, just outside Aberystwyth. And the two of us moved down there in, in, in 2000. And I got various odd jobs helping out with research projects and stuff. Um, but I was always writing uh, mm-hmm. in, in in my spare moments because I'd always, I'd loved doing it. it. Um, Is that something
1: you'd just always done from yeah, childhood? Yeah, uh, from, from
0: childhood, <laughs> but most certainly when I was at university, yeah. I, 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 and I, I was obsessed with comics for a long time and I wanted to try and write comics. So I was writing lots and lots of comic scripts and sending them to 2000 AD and DC and Marvel and getting lots of rejections back. But I just loved the, the challenge of taking nothing and turning it mm. into something. Uh, so... I'd been doing that, and then when I, when I lived in Aberdeen, I was, um, I, through comics, a mutual love of comics, I was introduced to a chap called Stuart McBride, who anyone who's written, read crime fiction may have heard of. Um, back then, obviously, he, he, was, he was not writing crime fiction back then, this was in the early 90s. He and I really got on really well. Um, we used to exchange manuscripts, give, give each other feedback and stuff. And then he got his big break when HarperCollins published his first novel, he phoned me up and told me to stop writing the nonsense that I was writing at the time and try crime fiction. Uh, and I hadn't I hadn't really done, written any crime fiction. I mean, it was it was sort of incidental to some of my comics plots yeah. and stuff. Um, but I, I just thought, well, I'll give it a go. And I, I hadn't read much crime fiction then. I, I, I read a few of Ian Rankin's books because my dad was a big fan. So I kind of modelled myself on Ian Rankin and Stuart's Mm. books which i had read Mm. and came up with a well the character tony mclean i'd had for ages he'd been in some of my comics just as a walk-on policeman so i thought well i'll write i'll try writing a a few short stories and i wrote a half a dozen short stories one of which was natural causes which i then expanded into a full-length novel and i submitted that that was in 2005 2006 quite a long time ago now and i am I submitted it to the Crime Writers Association Debut Dagger competition, which is a competition for unpublished authors. And it was shortlisted. Brilliant. That's, you know, wow. And I went down to the the award ceremony in London and had a great party because Stuart was there as the sort of bright new light and everything. And he introduced me to loads of people. I didn't win. Um, But publishers asked to see the novel on the back of that. I thought, this is brilliant. It's great. So it got sent off. I got an agent and she sent sent this off to, to all loads of publishers and then it started to come back with what I like to call rave rejections. Because they were all saying, Oh, we loved it, your, your writing's really, really good, but there's no there's no market for crime novels with a supernatural twist in them. You right. can't you can't have a who-done it when it turns out to have been a ghost or a demon at the end. That's horror, not crime and and, and, and I, it got turned down for that reason. But by that time, I'd already written the sequel to it because I got so excited about being shortlisted for the debut Dagger and everything. So I put that in for the debut Dagger, The Book of Souls, which is book two in the series. And it got shortlisted as well. And the publishers asked to see it. And the whole same thing happened, came back. And then I'd, I'd I'd got really quite close to getting a publishing deal with one publisher. And 2008, July 2008, my parents died. And that just... Just stopped yeah. everything yeah. dead. I, I I couldn't. That that they turned that the book down. That publisher turned the book down at the last minute. Um, but I had no enthusiasm to do anything for for probably a couple of years because that's you know mm. it's a big shock. Yeah. It's I was I was mourning and grieving and stuff. And then I took. I was busy taking on the farm, and I didn't really have time to write anything for a while. Um, but I was still quite keen to to publish, and I been introduced to the idea of self-publishing on the Kindle on Amazon ebooks and stuff. And I thought, well, I've got these two books that I've already written. I don't have time to write another one at the moment because I'm too busy with the farming. I'll just put them out, see what happens. Uh, and I didn't do any marketing or anything. I just I worked out the best way to format everything and how to make it look professional. So you did all that yourself? I did all that myself. Yeah. Uh, I did commission someone to do covers for me so i spent it was about a hundred dollars or something for a couple of covers and i thought you know if i make that back i'm doing well Mm -hmm. and if i make a little bit more it'll you'll pay for some wine at christmas or something and natural cause you've now got the
1: wine fridge in your 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 new house you built so we can hear it in the background there there yeah wine (laughs) fridge in the background
0: yeah so i i um, i didn't really have any great thoughts about it and the only marketing thing i thought was i I'll make the first one free for a while, so people, if people can, can download it for free, and if they like it, they can pay for the second one. Mm-hmm. And if they, if the second one starts selling well, I'll write the third one because I had ideas for a third one at that point. Within days of natural causes going free, it was being downloaded two thousand times a day, and I think I, in the end I shifted about three hundred thousand copies of it, paid yes. and free, right. over an eight-month period. And the second book, which I got out and was, I was charging. I think I was charging one pound ninety nine for it, and it was selling really, really well. And um, a friend of mine who's uh, who'd done a bit of ebook publishing said you you're not charging enough for it so i put it up to 2.99 and the sales doubled and then i put it up to 3.99 and they doubled again
1: P- people thought they were getting better va- but it was a better book or yeah. I, you know but it, it was just and that that's was credible because that would be yeah. all you know without being blunt or being blunt about it that would be all into your pocket because there's no publishing house or anything involved and that basically, was
0: and yeah, at that price amazon takes 30% all so right. i get that i get 70% but 70% yeah. of 4 pounds is yeah. still quite a lot yeah. of money which Certainly helps with the feed bill. Yeah, puts the Romneys and Highlanders yeah. into perspective a wee bit. Yeah. At what point did a did a
1: publisher come to you and say, mm, uh, "Sorry, James, sorry, Mister we got this wrong." You know, people do like crime or crime fiction with a with a supernatural twist does work.
0: Well, this was um, this was two thousand and twelve that this. The, the natural causes t- took off so spectacularly and i i went down that that summer to the the big crime fiction festival in harrogate there's an annual crime fiction festival i didn't have an agent at that time my the, my original agent that i'd had before had had retired and um i was approached by two or three agents looking to represent me which is the opposite way of, of it normally yeah. happening but there was one who i had met before when she'd only been an, an agent's assistant And She'd liked my work, but the agent she was assistant to hadn't so they hadn't taken me on But she came up and said I'm an agent in my own right now Um, And I ended up signing with her and she just did her stuff. She went around all the publishing companies and and said um, Told them the story about the book and showed them my Amazon figures and and actually we had five or six publishing companies bidding against each other for for the rights to the book I got a phone call from her while I was in Dundee doing the shopping one day and she phoned me up to give me an update and said, such and such a publishing house has offered £100,000 for three books. Um, I told them no (laughs) (laughs) because she didn't think that was enough. And I mean, bear in mind, given the amount of money I was making from Amazon at the time, they had to offer me quite a lot of money to give that up because if I... I'm not getting seventy percent of sales from a publishing no. house um it's it's a lot less um, but they can sell a lot more books yeah. and they do all the marketing and and everything so it's a it's a different arrangement but we did we ended up with a i think it was a five way auction and penguin or Michael Joseph, which is an imprint at penguin won won that uh, I was actually up up the hill mending a fence because the cows had broken into my brother's woods. In a snowstorm. So I'd had to chase them out of the, the woods <laughs> and then was mending the fence. My phone went off in my pocket and I picked it up. And, and Juliet told me that the good news, I thought, this is brilliant. Somebody else can mend the fences for <laughs> <laughs> you. Yeah. Yeah.
1: We'll, get, we'll get people to do yeah. fencing now. <laughs> to do yeah. Yeah. What's the origin? Where, where did it come from? Where did an Edinburgh detective with a supernatural twist, a supernatural nemesis, a
0: supernatural theme behind the crime. Where did that come from? Well, it, it goes right back to the comics. Uh, I loved comics, Superman and Batman and all that sort of stuff. Um, but also 2000 AD, which is the great British uh, sort of mm. weekly mm. comic. And i was been trying to write for that for ages. And, and one of the stories that I pitched for them in the very early 90s was basically a ghost story based in Edinburgh. And there was this one character uh, that was basically at the, the start of the story, the main character in the story who's just a down-and-out busker on Princess Street, gets killed quite violently in, uh, it, when, a, when a, a truck goes out of control and crashes into him. And then... Which you've done again. I, no, I did, no, I did yeah, in one of... Yeah, I, I yeah. reused it in... Yeah. in and, but um, one, the arc of that story is basically until his body is identified... His ghost is wandering the city, um, causing all kinds of mayhem, and the only person who can see the ghost or, or or even sort of think that the ghost is there is this one detective character, and all the rest of them can't see him, and that's Tony McLean, and that was the first story that I you know, I came up with. Two thousand AD didn't didn't use that and didn't buy that story, probably because it was a bit rubbish and a bit derivative, but the character stayed with me. So when Stewart said to me, write crime fiction. I was thinking, well, I don't even know where to start. Hang on, I've got a detective, <laughs> but his unique th- his his unique thing is that being able to see just beyond what most people see. So why don't I do it a little bit spooky and and that sort of stuff? And I I hadn't really taken on board that publishers wouldn't like that at the time. It was just the sort of thing that I wanted to read. Yeah. And the interesting thing is, if you if you read the blurb in any of my books now, it never mentions any kind of supernatural influence. It, look, it might be dark and sinister crimes or nasty things happening, but it won't say specifically, you know, Syrian yeah, refugees yeah. Have, have, have brought a djinn no. um, across with them, and now it's stalking the streets of Edinburgh, because that would go straight into the horror section, which is like 5% of the crime market. So it doesn't sell as well, which is a shame, because there's great writing, great, great horror writers So
1: there. even in your you know, practicing your art, writing, you're still keeping the, the, the cynical farmer businessman hat on here and still making sure that you've got that market.
0: Well, it's not, I don't get to write the blurbs. If I was doing the uh-huh, blurbs, right. yeah. if I was doing the little, the, the cover yeah. flap okay. stuff, yeah. I would probably say, you know, Satanists yeah, yeah, yeah. are yeah. Doing, doing such yeah. and such. Or whatever. Yeah. I've always tried to make the books so that that stuff is... A little bit ambiguous. It could be that there are actually demons or it could just be that people are being really nasty because they believe in demons. Mm. That's kind of the central question behind a lot of the books.
1: I do, I do, I, you know, I'll come back to you know. I'm a fan, I'm, I'm a reader, and, and, I, and I do think that some of the books, there's more obviously, I guess only a supernatural path it could take, mm. if that's the way of putting it. Whereas there's other times where you think yeah, just as you say, it could be that this is just happening because this psycho is influenced or thinks that that's yeah. the, you know, thinks that that's influencing him. Is that a fair yeah, point? That's, that's, it? Yes.
0: that's how I like to yeah. pitch it. There's, yeah. there's actually a, um, there's a line at the end of Natural Causes and I think given how long the book's been out, I can probably say this without giving too many spoilers so I, I'm rubbish at remembering what is a spoiler or not, but they're they're having finally identified the young woman and they're burying her and mclean's boss says to him um you don't believe in all this stuff do you tony and and he and he says something along the lines of, god no but um you know it doesn't really matter whether it exists or not they believe in it and that's all that matters and yeah
1: yeah because that's quite key to the story too in that i you know the reader i'm never fully up on whether tony's buying into what's happening or if he's just again he's just sort of being sucked along he's 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 there to solve the crime. He's there to, to 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 find out and, and lock up the baddies, as it were. But you know, he's never quite, which is probably healthy for a for a cop. Because if he was to think, well, it's just
0: supernatural, he, he, he maybe wouldn't pursue it to the nth degree. I like to think that Tony is he, he he's the ultimate pragmatist, um, you know, and and he he doesn't really believe in things. He you know, he he's not a big one for belief. He's one for evidence as all policemen should be. If it turns out that the only way he can stop this from happening is to accept for the moment that this is the way the things work and you have to do this to get rid of is it a demon or is it right. someone's imagined demon, then he'll do that and then park the idea as to whether the demon exists or not. So I, I, that's how I approach it anyway. And it's always—it's quite a tricky one to do. And sometimes it skews far too far into the... Into the sort of the super, the, there is only a supernatural explanation.
1: So, so, who are you then, James? Are you the the sort of believer that there is, you know, there's more out there, and there is, or are you the pragmatist that
0: I'm very much the show me the evidence kind of guy. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm, I'm, you know. I would love it if you know ghosts and UFOs and all this sort of nonsense existed, but I, you know, I, I I need a bit more proof than these blurry photos that you see and the people wandering around with with infrared cameras in in haunted houses and things on the telly. Um,
1: but you obviously have you obviously have great. I mean, is it fun to write? Is it or is it hard work to write? I mean, it's what hard is hard it? Work
0: to write, but it's very satisfying. I think I think the the thing I, I hate writing, but I love having written. I think is is mm. the quote. It's really satisfying if you can get that balance right and and, and play the thing just straight down the middle where people can either decide, oh, yes, it is the supernatural or, oh, no, it isn't. And that's how I've always approached writing. I start with a very, very small idea and just kind of work away with it. I'm not much of a a planner. I'll just sit down and start writing and see where it goes. And that is quite hard work because your brain is constantly trying to think through dozens of different scenarios as you're writing. But yeah, it is it is very satisfying when it comes together.
1: And, and you've been very sort of prolific in your hard work because, what did you say, 2012? We're, we're, we're 10 years-ish
0: down the line. Mm-hmm. And what did you say, 15 books? Uh, 20 books in total. Books? Uh-huh. I had written, I'd written Natural Causes... Or I'd written five books that have since subsequently been published before Natural Causes mm-hmm. came out. And it came out the Penguin edition... Um, came out in May twenty thirteen, so not quite ten years ago. Um but my my self-published edition came out uh, ten year just over ten years ago. And um yeah I, I mean I'm 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 a sucker for for punishment really basically. I I try been trying for so long to, to get published. But when I when it finally happened, I just kind of jumped on it and said, yeah, I'm gonna do this to the best of my ability. And at the time we hadn't built that when it first started, we hadn't built the house yet. When I, as I was saying, when I inherited the, the, the farm, my brother got the farmhouse. So we had a, a Dutch barn just across the yard from the, from where the house is now, um, which we didn't really need. So I got a static caravan that I bought off a local caravan park, shoved that in the Dutch barn and I lived in there for five years whilst we were building the house. And I wrote probably five or six novels in in the caravan, Um, but Barbara, my other half, she was still working. She'd moved from ADAS to the Welsh Assembly Government um, just before my parents died, and we had a house down in Wales. Um, So she stayed down there to sell the house and to look for a job up here. So for three years, I think it was, I was on my own in the caravan, well, me and the four dogs and the two cats. Writing. Um, right? so uh, that's what I do. I, I do the farm work during the day, and as it got dark, I'd sometimes remember to feed myself and mostly just sit down and write and write until about midnight and then go to bed and sleep, and get up the next day and do it all over again. And it's more difficult now because I've got this lovely house and I've got telly to watch and, mm. and Barbara to talk to and uh, so actually uh, there's more more things getting in the way of the writing but then I was really very focused and selfish about it.
1: You're like a, You're like a modern day Walter Scott, you know this is your Abbotsford. It's not quite as grand. <laughs> it's
0: got a better view. Yeah, it's got <laughs> a
1: fantastic view. I, I, I think we said that at the at the front of this pod, you know, the, the view that you've...
0: Especially the way you've designed the windows like well, that, the view down to the taze, when I, Because of the way the farm is set up, this was really the only place on the farm I could build a house. Mm-hmm. I could get planning permission to build a house. Um, and that's the view. So, you, And it is a spectacular view. So you have to build a house... To, to maximize that. Mm. Um, so I designed the house around that view uh, yeah. and then sat down and worked out how I was going to pay for it. <laughs>
1: Where are you now? Where, where's the, the writing? What's, what's happening? What can well, we I'm, look forward to?
0: I'm currently working on book 13. I'm about 60,000 words in, which is about uh, the first draft. So that's about halfway. And I've just worked out, I think, how it ends which for me, that's quite early on for me. Sometimes it takes me until I'm almost finished and I say, oh, that's what's happening. <laughs>
1: um, is, that, is, that, is that normal? Is that, you know, no, does, I mean, does I mean, Stuart McBride normal. work I, like that? No, or I, I, I think, do, I, do, think, I as mean, an example?
0: Different, different authors to, you know, plan to different extents and you get, you get people who plan meticulously and they'll have a, the whole thing mapped out before they write it a single word. And then you have some authors who, like me, just kind of wing it and hope that something works out in the end. I know, I've, I've, I've read an interview with Ian Rankin a few years back now, I think, that he he doesn't do very much detailed planning. He'll have a, a broad outline, maybe two or three pages of A4, but he won't start writing until he's got a title. And I wish I had that luxury. One of the problems with producing the books, I was doing two crime books a year for a while, and running the farm mm. and building a house, uh, I was kind of panicking. I just needed to keep writing, keep writing, keep writing, just to keep up. Um, so I'd just start writing without a title, and and then I'd get stuck because I could not think of a title. And my publisher's asking for a title. We need something to go in the catalogues, and we need to start commissioning cover art it's and a bit stuff.
1: Like this podcast, we put out every week. <laughs> and what are we call this week's episode, Dave. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, it turns out that my my editor. Um, my original editor, who is now currently my editor, is a huge fan of the Sisters of Mercy. Okay. Um, so that's why one of my books is called The Damage Done. Yeah. Another one is called Bury Them Deep. And one of them's called No Time to Cry. These are all Sisters of Mercy songs. Um, so for book 13, I shall probably go and um, look through the Sisters of Mercy songbook and see if I can come up <laughs> with you know, a, a title or a line.
1: Yeah. But the the whole process of writing and not quite knowing how it ends when you whilst you're writing, I wonder if actually that is a good thing from the reader's perspective because from from my point of view there's 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 no satisfaction in getting you know a third of the way through a book and thinking I can see where this is going I know where it's going maybe that's actually quite key because you've not written it knowing where it's going maybe that you know maybe well, that certainly
0: think it's it's it, I have occasionally seen seen reviews of some of my books where it's, it's oh I guessed who done it by page five. And I said well that's clever because I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, I I don't know. I think diff, you know, Some writers who plot meticulously can can maintain that that mystery and they can get the twists in exactly the right spot and everything. Uh, but my brain doesn't really work that way. But certainly, I think the way I write not knowing exactly what's going on particularly in the early stages of the books i've got some very interesting scenes going on and i've got no clue how it all adds up means that it's very unlikely when you read it that you're going to have an idea what's Mm. going to happen um so i think from that point of view yes it uh, it, it,
1: but then again when you introduce a character a repeating character like mrs what's her name Mrs. safer Mrs. Cypher. Cypher. Yeah. Cypher. You know, when you read a book, you yeah. can't, you know, Cypher. Mrs. Cypher. I suppose it's almost, you know, page five in the book and Mrs. Cypher appears. I well, you know she's, knows going she's, to... she's going to be there, yeah. there or thereabouts involved. Yeah. Mm.
0: And that, well, that is the problem with series fiction, obviously, particularly yeah. if you keep on bringing back the same yeah. villains. She's She's a great one, though, uh, Mrs. Cypher, because she also comes from the comics that I've Written right. using using Tony McLean as Jane Louise D and as Mrs Cipher, uh, and a little a little pun that I I've, I've done for myself in the books. She's o- either always Jane Louise D or Mrs Cipher. She's never Jane Louise Cipher, but yeah. she is Louise Cipher or Lucifer. Ah. It's this is quite
1: like yeah my, huh, my, right my, okay my editor, right?
0: editor Alex um, hadn't didn't get that no. until about until I think the last book and I pointed it out to him right as well so it's a it's it's a little pun because she she is basically, in in the in the comic script that I wrote um, the character Jane Louise D was a, a young tech you know, um, mm. uh, you know genius uh, but had no money or no prospects or anything and basically sold herself to the devil. To get fame and fortune and turn herself into the what was then the you know the because this was right in the early 1990s so she was the scottish equivalent of bill gates yeah, yeah. and um and that was why she became lucifer because the devil basically took her over as it were um and in the comics there was no hiding the ghosts and demons and stuff going on it was because it was you can get away with that mm. kind of stuff in comics um but that i just kept it kept it as that kind of named thing um and and she does seem to have possibly psychic powers she seems to die and then maybe it wasn't her it was a body double or she's just back or whatever um so that was that's why you know i've always i when i'm writing her i'm always thinking she is the devil incarnate um
1: and she, she but she originates in this neck of the woods is that right am i no you was know, it fight um, no You're... she
0: had it she had a house so see t- 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 um I'm always always searching for searching my memory as much as anything for um, locations, and she she had a I actually kind of that was um, whatever they call it um, writing back. Um, I, I I invented more of her character for one of the later books. I think it was I think it was um, which book was it, was it R- book? written in bones? I the think the one
1: where the politician. Oh, no, short, was it not? Yeah, that one? oh,
0: oh that, one, no, that the house the politician lives in uh-huh. is basically the other side of the hill here. Yes, right. Um, so that was here. That and, was here. Uh-huh. Uh, but Mrs. Seyfra, um Jane Louise D, comes from a family that had a mansion house in the south, in the East Nuke. Yes, um, right. okay. and, and which is um, close to. Uh, Actually, it's a it's a house that my sister and some friends of hers rented when they were all students at St Andrews in in the very early eighties. The lovely modernist concrete construction with big glass windows all looking south to the across the the, the fourth, um, and that became I used that memory of that house right. as as a setting. Right. Uh, and then there's a big mansion house. Ha- well, it was built in the grounds of a big mansion house, and I thought, well, a bigger mansion house can belong to to, to Jane Louise D.
1: It's interesting because you know, as I guess, as a farmer, and back to the fact, this is the on-farm podcast, by the way, mm-hmm. listeners. We are still on-farm. Um, there's a real, you know, I'm I'm an avid Ian Rankin Rebus fan, and there's a real feeling of, and I don't know if Ian Rankin listens to this podcast, by the way, but there's a real I'll, feeling I'll of, almost, you, <laughs> of almost it of almost. Well, I'll, I'll be careful about how I phrase this then, but there's a real feeling of almost slightly feeling let down if Rebus steps not out with edinburgh because i know that that he's done that a lot now but mm. into the countryside he's he's not familiar but then he wouldn't be he wouldn't mm. be so when a reader reads something and you and it just do you know what i mean it jars because yeah. you know that wouldn't be what was happening in the countryside at that time of year or whatever it might be it, it's it's like it's like the famous in superman when the combines and look at the wild oats and that barley you know mm. it's The things that jar from a farming point of view or a a, a countryside point of view. But Tony naturally goes into the countryside. It feels more natural. That scene, you know, there's the Highland cattle round about him felt more, to me anyway, it felt that was, you know... I think that, I mean,
0: I'm probably... I, I would I would worry the other way round that I'm not getting Edinburgh right because I have very briefly lived in. Which
1: it. I was just about to ask. Yeah, does yeah, that does the I, opposite? Yeah.
0: I very briefly re- lived in Edinburgh, um, in Tony's flat in Newington, for instance. I, I based on the the flat that I lived in Edinburgh when I was a postgrad student for one term before I gave up that course, and I I lived in Roslyn for five years whilst my partner was doing a PhD at the Dick Vat. And I used to work in a call center just off Leith Walk. And I, I worked for a little while in an office in the grass market. So you have about the geography, yeah. A lot yeah. Of, a, but a lot of the, particularly in the early books, a lot of the murders took place in places where I had worked, mm. Because I knew them well enough to to be able to describe them. I, I wrote the first two books. That's a I was, bad
1: admission, James. You can't <laughs> see a lot of murders took place where well, I worked.
0: Oh no, no, I'm a crime writer. I, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I, that's, I've got my my cast iron excuse for my my browser history. <laughs> brilliant. It's just been
1: great to chat. Um, absolutely brilliant to chat with James. And and we're going to have a bit wander outside and see some Highland cattle and and continue our chat. And we'll hopefully bring you that episode next week. I'm already looking forward hugely to next week's episode when we're going to be back with James Oswald taking a wander around the farm and the steading and meeting some Highland cattle huge thanks again to James for taking the time to chat I thoroughly enjoyed it I am a fan and I'm sure that came across in the podcast and I can't recommend highly enough especially the Tony McLean DI Inspector McLean series I must also thank big thank you as always to our on-farm sponsors scottish law firm gillespie MacAndrew. it's sponsors like gillespie MacAndrew who make these episodes possible and just before we go our usual reminder on-farm is made by our team here at seen and heard pr and marketing get in touch with us anytime you have any food or rural business pr or comms questions so that's it from me and bye for now